I have found over the years that people love question and answer sessions about the Bible, particularly when they can ask those questions of a person who is really knowledgeable about the Bible. Well, we have such a person with us for this program, and we are going to bombard him with some tough questions. Stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I am delighted to have with me this week as my special guest, Dr. Ron Rhodes, who is the founder and director of Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministries. He is an expert on the Bible. And one of the things that he specializes in is answering tough questions about the Bible. Welcome to Christ in Prophecy. It's good to see you today. I understand your ministry is located in Frisco, is that right? Frisco, Texas. Very few people have heard of it, but it's a great town. Well, isn't it one of the fastest growing places in the entire United States? Not only Texas, but all. That's what I like to tell people, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And also with us uh, is one of our newest staff members, Nathan Jones. And he's going to help me interview Dr. Rhodes. Nathan is our web minister, and that means much more than just being a a webmaster. Nathan is on the website every day responding to questions from people all over the world and looking for opportunities to share the gospel with unbelievers. Nathan, you get bombarded with questions all day long, every day. I know that Mm -hmm. because you show me some of those questions. Why don't you lead off by asking Dr. Rhodes a question, okay? Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, Dr. Rhodes. It's good to meet you. And if I don't have the answer, I know that Dave does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am so impressed by the amount. 40 books that you've written, all on topics on apologetics. I love apologetics. And uh, we get zingers all the time in from atheists and skeptics who are trying to shoot us down. And you wrote a book, Answering the Objections of Atheists, Agnostics, and Skeptics. And I'm sure you get zingers all the time. Oh, sure. What do you think is the number one zinger you get from atheists, and how do you respond? Well, one of the questions I get asked is, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-good, how come bad things happen on planet Earth? Mm. I get asked that question all the time. I would say that's the number one question. I I hear it over and over and over. It's got to be. And I like to answer that question by giving an illustration. Let's say that you've built a perfect house. I mean, it's just a beautiful, wonderful house. Uh, The the construction is perfect. It's got uh, excellent materials. Maybe 15 years later, you've got this termite invasion. And it just eats away at the foundation and eats away at the walls. The question becomes, does the existence of termites in that house disprove the existence of an architect. Does it? <laughs> no. Wow, obviously not. Yeah. What about arson? If somebody comes in and throws a match in there and burns the whole place up, does that disprove the existence of an architect? Not at all. What if you have a sloppy homeowners that don't cut the lawn? Does that disprove the existence of an architect? <laughs> not at all. It just means that something good has been corrupted. The house was good, but now it's got termites. It's been corrupted. And that's what evil is. Evil is the corruption of something good. Now, by analogy, God created the earth. And you remember what God said when uh, he completed the creation? He looked out over it all and said, It is good. It is good. It is good. But the earth has since become corrupted. And you know what caused it? It was a termite invasion of human sin. That's what brought evil into the universe. So we shouldn't be really blaming God on this. We should be blaming ourselves. But if God is really a God of love, why didn't he just put an end to evil? Well, let's just consider that for a minute. Let's just say that at midnight tonight, God's going to say evil is over. 
I don't like that option, Dave. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Because at midnight tonight, Dave Reagan is gone. God. You're gone. Ron Rhodes is gone. In fact, your entire viewing audience is gone. <laughs> That's right. You see, so I'm kind of glad that God is patient with us. Uh, you know, one thing God did as soon as man got himself into this trouble with this uh, termite invasion of sin is that he engaged in a rescue mission for us. And he's been involved in that rescue mission ever since. And it's all based upon Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So, you know, that's the good news in I all guess of this. The, the fundamental problem here is the free choice that God gave us. Mm-hmm. Well, God did give us free choice. But, you know, um, some people try to blame God for that. Uh, but look at it this way. Uh, Henry Ford created the Ford car. It was a good car. Now, that predates me. I wasn't there back then when Ford made his <laughs> you car. You didn't know. Dave, what, what was that car like? Oh, anyway, come on. Uh, uh, Al. <laughs> of course, Dave knows I'm kidding. But, uh, you know, it was a good car. But let's say that some man uh, decides to drive that car after drinking some alcohol. He drives down the street and crashes into a building. You see, are we going to say that Henry Ford is a bad man for creating the Ford? No, he's not the person that did something wrong. It's the man who used his free will to, to drink alcohol, to do something wrong before he drove. You see, that's the person who, who was at blame. And so I don't think that we should blame God for giving us free will. I've never seen a person walking down the street saying, you know, with one of those big placards that says, down with free will. Or, yeah. or back to bondage. Why didn't God mm-hmm. create us without free will and just say, you're going to obey me and do what I tell you to, and, and everything's going to be nice and fine? Well, that's a good question. I think that if, if God had created a bunch of those little robots, you know, mm-hmm. like where you pull the string on the back and it mm-hmm. says, I love you, just imagine an entire universe of those. <laughs> w- w- would that bring glory to God? There's real no fellowship there, There's no, no real, real relationship. Not really. I mean, you just pull it and it goes, I worship thee, O Lord God. <laughs> I mean, that, that doesn't bring glory to God. What would bring glory to God is if God created free human beings, many of whom are going to choose to freely follow Him and worship Him for all eternity. Of course, the very gift of free will also means that some people will misuse that free will. Some people will choose against God. Mm -hmm. But uh, as C.S. Lewis put it, in the end, this scenario brings much more glory to God than a universe of robots. Ron, we're going to be asking you a lot of tough questions uh, in this question, uh, in this particular program, and uh, hopefully in some other programs that you'll come back and be with us. Um, so let's just t- pause for a moment and give you an opportunity to tell our viewers what are your credentials for answering these questions. I think it's important that they know that you're just not talking off the top of your head here. So what are your credentials for answering Bible questions? Well, I was very, very blessed to be able to attend Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, and I got my master's and my doctorate there. And I've got to tell you that I went uh, uh, when men like Charles Ryrie and John F. Wolverd uh, and Dwight Pentecost. Yes. I mean, all those guys were my primary right. teachers. And, uh, you know, those guys are just the most wonderful men of God that I've ever We've met. We've had Dr. Ryrie on this program. Well, yeah. then you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. I mean, he's just a wonderful, not just a wonderful scholar, did, but a wonderful Christian. What fields Christian. did you get your degrees in? Well, systematic theology, which oh, seems okay. to be a dying dinosaur today. Yeah, that's a, that's a people, scary area. <laughs> well, you know, for whatever reason, uh, a lot of people the don't like theology. <laughs> well, I like it, personally. I love Bible doctrine. You know why? 
because it's built upon the foundation of right. the Bible. Well, you're actually uh, considered <coughs> to be an expert in the field of apologetics, yes. which to the average Christian and even the non-Christian, it seems a very strange word. Are you apologizing yeah. for the faith? What does apologetics mean? Well, it sounds like we're always going around saying, I'm sorry. But in <laughs> fact, what we're doing is defending Christianity against any challenge whatsoever. Okay. It might be atheism, agnosticism. It might be the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. Uh, it might be Islam. Uh, there's all kinds of challenges against Christianity. So what we do is to help provide solid, strong answers that people can use to reach those people for Christ. Okay. Now tell us uh, a little bit more about your ministry, the name, name well, of it and what it does. We're called Reasoning from the Scriptures, and that okay. kind of gives it away right there. Yes. So we base everything on the Scriptures. Uh, the name is not really unique to us because you might remember that the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts would reason from the Scriptures with people in different cities. So that's what we do. We happen to think that the Bible is the most important book ever. And so what we do is to help people to use the Bible to answer agnostics and atheists and people that are you know, lost in different cults and stuff like that. And uh, we actually do answer our email. I, I say that because a lot of ministries don't. If people have a problem and they're looking for an answer, we will help. And uh, none of us take a salary at our ministry. Yeah. This is all based upon our own commitment to the Lord and our joy in the Lord. In well, at the end of this him. program, we're going to tell people how to get in touch with your ministry, and uh, they may put you to the test of, of, of asking questions well, I, and expecting I encourage them an answer. To do it. And I, I want to say, too, that uh, they can do that here anytime because Nathan is online. Uh, eight hours a day. Well, you ready, know what it's like then. Right? Ready to respond well, to questions. And he really does uh, answer those questions. Bob, okay? So um, what we'll do is take a break here, and then we'll come back in just a moment and start bombarding you with some more questions. Okay. okay? Thank you. Sounds fun. Okay, gentlemen, let's get back to some tough questions about the Bible. Nathan? How about another one? All right. Well, I've been looking at your book, Understanding the Bible from A to Z. And uh, what would you then say is the key most important thing to understanding the Bible? Three words. Context, context, <laughs> context. Uh, you know, every word of the Bible is part of a sentence. Every sentence is part of a paragraph. Every part, paragraph is part of a book. Every book in the Bible is part of the entire Bible. So there's both an immediate context of each verse and there's a broader context and the best way to make sure that you're interpreting rightly is to consult both, the immediate context and the broader context. Can I give you an example? Okay. Uh, there's a verse in Matthew 5.48 that says, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Some people read that and they go, Oh, geez, I've got to be absolutely perfect to go to heaven. <laughs> Uh-oh, not good, because, you know, we're not perfect. None of us are. Is that right? Except for you. Uh, yeah. But... Uh, in any event, when you look at the context, what you see is a discussion about love. You see, the Jewish Pharisees said that you're supposed to love your neighbors but hate your enemies. Jesus said, no, you love your neighbors and you love your enemies. Mm -hmm. You are to be perfect in loving other people as the Heavenly Father is perfect. Yes. You see, that's the context. It's all about love. So that helps us to understand what that verse is really talking about. It's not saying that we must attain some kind of perfection to go to heaven. But rather, it's, it's saying that we should be complete in loving other people day to day. One that comes to my mind that uh, I see used all the time, it just 
really upsets me is people who are trying to prove that Revelation 20 does not mean what it says when it says that Jesus is coming back to reign for a thousand years. And what they do is they go over and pick up that psalm that says uh, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And they say, now, are there only a thousand hills? No, there's many more. So therefore, the word thousand is always symbolic and never literal. Well, that's right. People often I mean, approach the book of Revelation. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is what we call pre-understandings in the theological <laughs> world. People approach the text with a pre-understanding of a theological system that governs the way they interpret those verses. And you know what? What you really need to do is to have what they call a circular system of interpretation. All of us have some kind of a system of theology, but what I'm saying is that that system of theology must be subject to the Bible. It should always be tested against the Bible. And if you come across a verse real clear like Revelation 20, and that contradicts your theological system, guess what? You need to rewrite your theological system. And you certainly don't take a verse that's over in some other area with a different context and apply it to Revelation, which is a whole different context. Well, that's right. And really, when you think about it, the entire Bible is pointing forward to the reign of Christ anyway. Is that the overall theme, would you say, then, for the Bible? I I think that the kingship of Christ was prophesied back in the original covenants. You look at the Davidic covenant, for example, in 2 Samuel 7. It's prophesied about a king who would rule forever. He would sit on the throne of David. We're not talking about some kind of spiritual thing up in a twilight zone heaven. We're mm-hmm. talking about a real throne right. on a real earth. And so if you interpret Scripture in a literal fashion, you're going to come out bleeding in a literal 1,000-year period. You love illustrations, and one that just popped into my mind about this point is if I uh, – let's use the same term in two sentences. Yesterday I visited the White House. Today the White House announced that the president is going to Russia. Now I've used the same term in two sentences. In one, it's literal – in the other, it's symbolic. Right. The White House doesn't talk. Mm. But, you know, I visited the White House. The White House says. You have the same term, but one is literal, one symbolic. Context determines what, whether it is. Well, that's right. You know, I mean, just to give an English illustration, you know, if you use the word trunk, that can refer to the front of an elephant, the rear end of a man, <laughs> the front of a, the back of a car. <laughs> it can refer to a suitcase. I mean, just depending upon the context, the word can mean a whole lot of different things. And one of the big mistakes that first year your seminary students often make is assuming that because a word is used one way in one context, yes. it has to mean the same thing right. in every other verse. And that's a mistake. Okay, now you mentioned context, context, context. Yes. But another one that comes to my mind that seems to me very important is to interpret uh, the Bible for its plain sense meaning. Well, that's right. As opposed in fact, to spiritualizing. Uh, uh, when the plain sense makes good sense, why seek any other sense? You know, that's that's one of the things that uh, I've based my entire interpretive methodology on. And yet today we've got all kinds of people reading all kinds of things into the Bible. If people would just let the Bible speak for itself, you know, guess what, guys? Who created human language? Who was it? God. God. God created linguistic symbols called words by which he communicates with man through revelation. And in almost, you know, most cases, God communicates in a normal everyday means. That's right. Now, it is true that there are some verses that are poetic, like in the Psalms and so forth. But, uh, you know, most of the time when God is communicating, He's communicating in statements of fact. Yes. And when the plain sense makes good sense, why seek any other sense? I think one of the reasons that people spiritualize so much is because uh, they become God when they do so, because they can make the Scriptures mean anything they want it to mean. Well, you know, the, the uh, cults are experts at that. Oh, yes. You know, they'll, they'll take a verse and they'll make it say something entirely foreign uh, to the original context. And frankly, we've got a, a crisis in the church today because many Christians don't know the Bible very well. That's right. 
And uh, that's all the more reason for people to get back to the Bible. And when you're reading scripture verses, remember that rule. When the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense. I would think of Zechariah 14 that says the Lord's coming back. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. When his foot touches the mount, it's going to split in half. He's going to speak a supernatural word. The enemies will be destroyed. And on that day, he'll become king over all the earth. Lorraine Bettner, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, Reformed theologian, said, that doesn't mean that. What it means is that the Mount of Olives stands for the human heart. And when you invite Jesus to come into your heart, He lands on your heart. Your heart breaks in contrition. The enemies are defeated and He becomes King of your heart. Well, you know, I went to talk to a minister at a church. You know what the minister told me? Yes, the Bible is inspired, but it's inspired kind of like Shakespeare is inspiring to read. Yes, there is a second coming in the Bible, but what that really means is when a person finds God again in his heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's spiritualizing the text. And if you spiritualize the text, you can make it say anything. Where do they get that interpretation? It's almost like it's almost like they go to the scriptures and they say, now what God really meant to say was. Yeah. And then they give you some other interpretation. W.A. Criswell once made the comment that uh, one of the problems with uh, biblical interpretation is that so many people believe that the Bible is inspired only in those areas where they agree with it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> then it's inspired. Well, you know what inspiration really means? It means God breathed. God breathed out the scriptures, and that means that He so superintended their writings that He controlled what they wrote, even though He didn't violate their writing styles. Nathan, I know you're biting at the bit to, to ask another question because it's one that's dear to your heart about oh, evolution yes. and creation. So uh, jump into that. And you, and you did a book on that, too. It's, you got everything. Well, I, what's, I, the I love this what's the title of that one? This one is Things You Should Know About the Creation Versus Evolution debate. And uh, I, besides Bible prophecy, the creation, evolution, and debate, just because the mindset of the evolutionist is just so otherworldly. Well, it's foundational to everything else. The fact that that, that God is a creator. Well, the the Bible seems to be so beaten up in the first few chapters in Genesis and at the end of the Bible in Revelation. And (laughs) And so you get arguments against both. So what would you then say is the most frequent question you get from evolutionists? What is their strongest argument? Well, you know, very often it seems like today the, the real attack from the evolutionist is coming against intelligent design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's got them running scared. From Ben I, Stein's oh, movie? Yeah, I think, I think yeah. the fact is, is that, the, when, you know, remember that old uh, preacher who was preaching a sermon and he came to a weak part in his sermon and he had on his sermon notes, <laughs> pound pulpit, weak point, you know. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of what these atheists are doing. They know that they're cornered by intelligent well, design. Well, I think and DNA just, forced them into this. I think yeah. so. Yeah. I think so. And I think DNA is a great place to start. I don't think uh, um, you can look anywhere and not find intelligent design. You can look into a microscope. You can look into a telescope and find evidence for intelligent design. You know, just in terms of the DNA factor, uh, did you know that in just a single pinpoint of DNA, you can find as much information as four complete sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica? Now, you know the Encyclopedia Britannica is 30 volumes with small print. <laughs> That's a lot of information in there. So the question did is naturally, did it write itself? Did the Encyclopedia Britannica, did it write itself? Do software programs write themselves? What's crazy is the thinking. We had a guy write in and say, because creation is so complex, it proves there isn't a God, because if he was God, he would have made everything simple. Well, that's kind of a ridiculous argument. Often, yeah. often we as human beings think we might have had a better design for certain things. But, you know, look at it this way. I might look at a computer system and say, you know, I think I could design this computer to where it would be much smaller. But then I go and talk to the engineer, and the engineer tells me, ah, but the reason why it's got a big casing like that is to provide for the cooling system because of the internal heating of the, of the components. 
Well, now I've got new information that alters the way that I'm looking at things. Mm. And the fact is, is that God has reasons, many of which we don't know about, uh, as to why he created certain things in certain ways. And so uh, I think that one day, when it's too late for a lot of these people, once they've passed over, they're going to say, well, boy, I was wrong after all. There really is an intelligent designer, and it really does make sense. Well, One of the things that's so disconcerting to me is the way in which uh, the people who believe in evolution are absolutely determined not to have any other uh, viewpoint presented. Yes. And yet the essence of education is to consider all viewpoints and seek for truth. It's as if they're afraid that if the other viewpoint is presented, somebody might believe it. Well, you know, the, the way I look at it is that, you know, naturalism reigns supreme in universities today. And that oh, may yeah. be a word that your listener, your viewers may not know, but naturalism refers to the idea that nature explains everything. Mm -hmm. You don't need a God. Mm -hmm. You don't need supernatural miracles. But what if the science that has been supporting naturalism for so many years turns on naturalism and starts to provide scientific arguments against naturalism. Mm -hmm. That's what we're seeing today that's right. in intelligent design. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're just so vitriolic against the intelligent design movement. Well, I know one reason they're so vitriolic, and that is they don't want to give an inch on this because if you <coughs> ever actually admit that there might be an intelligent designer or creator, that means you're subject to that person and that there are some more. Oh, that's a good point. And, yeah. and that that's messes an up my life because I want to do what I want to do. Well, you know, I was talking to Lee Strobel about this very thing. Now, you know that Lee used to be an atheist. Yes. And he said, he said, Ron, you know, one of the things that kept me an atheist was not specific belief systems. One of the things that kept me an atheist was the fact that it made my lifestyle real comfortable. I, I could do anything I wanted. And I didn't have to answer to an external God. I didn't have to obey commandments. Uh, so you're right. I mean, if, if you end up believing that there is an intelligent designer who created the universe, that means that you and I are responsible to obey that creator. That's and right. that means a change in lifestyle is in order. A lot of atheists don't want to make that change. Uh, uh, well, I would say so. <laughs> Did you have another point you wanted to make about uh, evolution? Sure. Uh, we've heard the strongest argument for creation is intelligent design. It seems, And the Bible says it. That creation proves the Bible, basically. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God. What is the strongest argument for evolution, and how can Christians counter that? Well, you know, one of the arguments that uh, very often comes up in terms of support of evolution is that uh, they believe that the fossil evidence supports their viewpoint. Well, I, I really don't think it does support their viewpoint. No, not at all. And the reason that I say that is that we've discovered virtually billions of fossils all over the world and if evolution were true, what you would expect to see is simple life forms evolving into complex life forms. That's right. You'd expect to see fossils of, of simple life forms, and then on the next layer of rock, you would expect to see a little bit more advanced creatures. And then each new layer of rock would bring all new fossils that are supposedly growing wings and different <laughs> body parts and stuff like that. But we don't see that. There's no transitional forms yeah. in the fossil record. You know what it looks like in the fossil record? It looks like all of a sudden, all of these life forms suddenly exploded on the scene mm -hmm. and got fossilized. Yes. All of them are fully formed. Jumbled that up. seems to support creationism. It's interesting. The theory of evolution is based on the dating, like you said, of the strata. Yes. So they'll date the strata based on the fossils inside the strata. And then the paleontologists will base, date the fossils based on the strata they're in. So you're like, wait a minute, each base is the dating on the other. It's kind of so circular it's, it's reasoning. It's totally circular reasoning. There's no logic I think it. also that uh, these people also assume what's called uniformitarianism. 
the idea that uh, things have been going along at the same pace throughout all human history. Yeah. But what I believe as a creationist is that when the flood occurred, uh, the entire world was upset in a catastrophic mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you had layer upon layer of mud coming upon each mm-hmm. other with dead creatures mm-hmm. being captured mm-hmm. within that layer of mud. And that, I think that that explains a lot of the layers that we presently see today. It doesn't represent this incredible length of time as some of these uh, uh, evolutionists like to talk about. But, but it's, it's, it's a shorter time. Well, let me ask you a question that Chris, Christians often ask. Yes. And we only have about a minute for you to respond to all this. Right. And that, I hear Christians say this all the time. What difference does it make? Who cares? Whether whether uh, God created instantly or He created over a long period of time, what difference does it make? Well, for one thing, uh, can you trust your Bible? Can you trust your Bible? I mean, when you look at the Genesis account, it's talking about the creation days in terms of light and darkness, Mm -hmm. in terms of morning and evening. That's right. And you need to consider the fact that the Hebrew word for day, whenever it's used with a number, always refers to a literal Mm -hmm. 24-hour day. Mm -hmm. Now, if you cannot trust the book of Genesis in its plain statements of fact about creation— what makes you think you can trust anything else in the Bible? So the very veracity of the Word of God is at stake here. It is, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, uh, it, there's much more than the creation itself at stake. It's the entire Bible with the entire message of the Bible. And that spells disaster for you, you know, if, if you're looking for redemption in Christ. How do you know you can trust those verses about redemption in Christ if you cannot trust the Bible? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, you know how to answer questions, get right to the heart of them. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I love the Bible. I love the Bible. (laughs) Well, that is. Well, uh, what I want to do is come back in just a moment and uh, talk about some uh, your book, answering tough questions. So uh, we'll do that in just a moment. Excellent. Sounds good. Ron, you have authored uh, several reference books, and one of them is entitled, What Does the Bible Say About? Really, it's, it's answering tough questions. Yes. And I'd just like to ask you, what do you think are two or three of the toughest questions you've ever been asked about the Bible? Oh, gee, i got some good ones I can think of. <laughs> some good ones. Uh, one is, why did God command the Israelites to completely wipe out another nation like the well, Canaanites? that's a good question. That's mm. a tough one. It really is. Another one that people ask me these days is, uh, isn't Jesus just one of many ways to salvation? Mm. And isn't it a little bit arrogant and narrow-minded to say that Jesus is the only way? That's probably the number one question now. Well, that one just uh, comes up all the time. And another one I can think of that comes up, especially among Christians, is if the Holy Spirit guides Christians in understanding the Bible, as 1 Corinthians 2 indicates, why is it that Spirit-filled Christians interpret Bible verses differently? Well, you know how to. So, <laughs> these are tough questions. So I'm going to ask you, you think those you've questions. You've been getting tough questions, brother. <laughs> well, I tell you what, we don't have time to answer those right now. But uh, I tell you what, folks, uh, next week, if you'll tune in, we'll have uh, Dr. Rhodes back with us and he will answer those questions. Okay? Mm-hmm. And as we uh, conclude this week, would you look right into that camera and tell folks how they can get in touch with your ministry? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, you can uh, visit us on the web at www.ronroads.org. That's R-O-N-R-H-O-D-E-S dot org. And we've got lots of free materials that you can download, and we've got a free newsletter you can ask for. We don't ask for any money for it, so we hope you stop by. Thank you very much, Ron. Well, folks, that's our program for this week. Until next week, uh, I hope you'll be back with us. This is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. 
Popular author and Bible teacher Ron Rhodes offers straightforward, easy-to-understand answers to tough questions asked about God, faith, and living for Christ. In his book, What Does the Bible Say About?, Ron addresses more than 300 issues as diverse as Do Guardian Angels Exist?, Is Meditation Okay for Christians?, and What Will Heaven Be Like? Readers will also find information about apparent Bible contradictions, issues about science in the Bible, and the effects of humanism on society. Drawing from five years on Walter Martin's National Bible Answer Man radio broadcast, Ron Rhodes shares his accurate research and solid biblical insights. Readers will find simple but not simplistic answers to Bible questions that they've wondered about. His approach is biblically conservative and evangelical. This book is available for a gift of $15 plus the cost of shipping and handling. Order by visiting lamblion.com and click on the TV Offers button. What Does the Bible Say About? is cataloged as P71. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 